So uh, today, our first speaker is Dr. Christine Erlinson, and she has been a go-to researcher on all aspects of HIV and aging, including frailty and interventions to address it, which is her topic for today. Uh, she has a dual appointment as an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and Infectious Diseases Division uh, and in the Department of Geriatrics at the University of Colorado. And, you know, Jerry used the word historic uh, in, in his introduction. And I, I think, you know, we have really come such a long way uh, into HIV over the decades and now we have the privilege of dealing with a new problem, which is that so many of our people living with HIV are getting older. Uh, really, most of the people living with HIV have reached uh, 50 or more. And this sets up, us up for a lot of new issues in terms of their clinical care. And, and the one that we're going to focus on today uh, with Christine is aging and frailty. So, Christine, take it away. Thank you so much for the introduction and good morning from Colorado. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today about frailty. Uh, as Dr. Thompson mentioned, this is a topic of growing interest, uh, particularly this year as we see the impact of COVID and aging on our older patients with HIV. So my goals today are to have you be able to describe the clinical relevance of physical function and frailty, to be able to select some tools as well as um, cover some interventions that might attenuate or reverse frailty and impairments in physical function. So with an increasing age of people living with HIV, these terms like functional impairment, frailty, and disability are being used with greater frequency. And while it's kind of easy to recognize someone as frail or functionally impaired, what are the best ways to actually define these conditions so that we can start to incorporate them in clinical practice and intervene to prevent them or reverse them? So let's first take a look at the World Health Organization Disability Framework. The basis of this model is that there's some sort of impairment. This might be osteoarthritis or neuropathy. Over time, this impairment might lead to limitations in daily activities, such as the ability to get up from a chair or the ability to walk across the room or walk a couple of blocks to the bus. And again, over more time, this may result in disability or limitations in the ability to participate in the community. What's important to note in this disability model is that disability is a social construct. It's dependent on what the individual expects of him or herself within their culture, what um, is expected of that individual, what resources are available to help them function in their community, and then how their physical environment is set up. So, for example, someone with severe hearing impairment and severe arthritis that's wheelchair bound could easily be considered disabled, particularly if they don't have resources for hearing aids. However, if that person has adequate hearing aids, wheelchair accessible transportation, they could easily still work full time and fully participate in their community and maybe not consider themselves as disabled. In contrast to the disability framework, frailty is a separate but closely related concept that describes more of a vulnerability to stressors. I'm going to talk a lot more about frailty in the next several slides. It's important to note, as you can see in the figure on the right, that frailty is related to, and it often overlaps with comorbidity and disability, but it's not equivalent. Not all frail individuals have disability, and not all people with several comorbidities are actually frail. In fact, it's not very common, but frailty can exist outside of comorbidity. So you can all probably picture a frail person in your mind, this idea that someone's very fragile and is easily broken. 
So if we tap someone that's frail, they're continuing along at their kind of baseline level of function, and they encounter some sort of stressor like COVID or a hospitalization, they have an abrupt decline in their function, and then they slowly can return um, to their prior level of function, but not quite get there. Then over time with continued stressors, they continue to have deterioration and don't really ever bounce back to where they were. In contrast, in the top line, you can see someone that might be pre-frail or frail. They have that same uh, stressor that they encounter, a hospitalization or maybe COVID. They have an initial decline in their function, but they go back essentially to their same level of function after a short period of time or some rehabilitation, and they continue along at that same level of function. So one of the most common descriptions of frailty is that of the frailty phenotype. And this was initially described by Linda Freed in, the, in uh, 2001. It's often referred to as the Freed frailty phenotype. And this encompasses this concept of vulnerability. The frail, fra, Freed frailty phenotype includes five different components. Uh, objective measures of slow gait speed, which is typically measured on a four meter walking course. So just a short distance um, across or down the hallway or maybe even across an exam room. Weak grip strength, which is usually measured by a handheld dynamo dynamometer, low levels of physical activity, fatigue, and weight loss. If someone has three of these components uh, and meets certain criteria, they're considered frail. If they have abnormalities in one or two of these components, they're considered pre-frail and therefore at risk for developing frailty. And if they have no abnormalities, they're considered robust. The frailty phenotype does take about five to 10 minutes to assess, um, which could be a significant burden in a typical busy HIV clinic visit where there's a lot of other things that need to be addressed. It also requires that space for a walking course of four meters, which may be available in your hallway. Um, and it does require the dynamometer if you're sticking to these five criteria, which may or may not be readily available in your clinic setting. It also needs to be assessed prospectively. Some chart or some studies have attempted to go back and kind of characterize a slow gait or weak grip from charts, but it's pretty difficult to do and probably not assessed in the usual um, typical clinic visit. The other common way to think about frailty is the deficit accumulation model or the frailty index. And this model considers variables that increase with age, but are not ubiquitous with age and are associated with health status. So for example, presbyopia or needing uh, readers as someone gets older, uh, occurs in almost everyone as they age, and it's not really associated with a poor health outcome. In contrast, something like osteoporosis increases with age, but it, not everyone has osteoporosis with age, and it is associated with fractures. So osteoporosis might be included as a variable in this index, whereas presbyopia would not. Each clinic or medical system can establish their own frailty index based on variables that are, are available within their um, clinic or their health setting. And essentially with this index, the more things that someone has wrong with them, the more likely they are frail. So it's more of a comorbidity burden rather than that phenotype that the frailty uh, phenotype expresses. Instead of scoring from zero to five, this looks at an index of zero to one using the number of variables that are impaired divided by the total number of variables that are assessed. So a lot of these indices will look at 30 to 50 different variables. If someone has 10 variables wrong or 10 variables impaired out of 30 uh, that are assessed, then they have a frailty index of 0.3. Uh, the major benefit, as I mentioned, of this frailty index is that it can be developed for a specific population. And so um, it can also be used going back and looking at chart review 10 years later, uh, as long as those variables were assessed at the time. 
Some of you may have heard of the Veterans Aging Cohort Study Index, and this is kind of a similar concept, except that it's restricted to routinely obtained laboratory variables, and it has been developed in the Veterans Aging or the Veterans uh, Aging Cohort Study, um, but has also been applied to other uh, study populations with similar benefit. So one question that comes up commonly with HIV and aging is, are people with HIV experiencing an accelerated or an accentuated aging process? And Frailty actually provides us some data to su suggest that, yes, they uh, seem to be, at least in terms of this marker of aging. This is data from the, um, age, the Amsterdam Age HIV study that suggests that people with HIV may experience frailty at an earlier rate. If you focus in on that red box in the middle, this is individuals in the study that both had HIV and uninfected controls that were between age 50 to 55. And if you look at this bar on the right, this kind of lighter gray color at the bottom shows that among those that had HIV, about 40% were robust, about 10% or a little over 10% were frail, and about 45% were pre-frail. And this is pretty similar to what we've seen in several other cohorts of similarly aged people with HIV. In comparison, if you look at this bar on the right, you can see that no individuals in this age group without HIV were identified as frail, and over 60% were actually considered robust. And we see similar trends with increasing age across this cohort. So the prevalence of frailty in other populations really depends on the age of the cohort that's studied, the definition of frailty that's used, whether it's that frailty index, the frailty phenotype, or the other many different definitions of frailty, and the proportion of people that are on antiretroviral therapy in that study. For example, we're looking at frailty in a sub-study of the Reprieve study, the large uh, randomized controlled trial of statins. And in that population, it's a bit younger, age 40 and older, almost all on antiretroviral therapy with pretty low or moderate cardiovascular risk. And we found a frailty prevalence of about 6%. And that's similar to a few other studies in kind of that 40 and older age population. In contrast, um, one of the science spotlights at Croy this year looked at a population in France, and they actually restricted um, their study to people age 70 or older with HIV and saw a frailty prevalence more than double that at about 13.5%. Other study populations like the ALIVE cohort um, or a couple of pop or a study in Cape Town um, had a lower proportion of their um, participants that were on antiretroviral therapy and saw even higher proportions of um, people that were frail. So what factors contribute to physical function and frailty in older adults with HIV? Well, many of them are exactly the same as what we can see, what we see contribute to frailty in older populations without HIV. There's certainly some basic mechanisms of aging, things like heightened inflammation, immune senescence, mitochondrial impairment that we see with aging uh, that are probably more pronounced in our um, older adults with HIV. We also see biobehavioral factors, things like substance use and decreased physical activity that are strongly associated with frailty. Um, there's certainly some HIV-related factors. I mentioned the absence of antiretroviral therapy, as well as some antiretroviral therapy-associated um, factors such as mitochondrial impairment, obesity, and lipodystrophy that can contribute to frailty. Uh, and then lastly, there's many structural inequalities that are probably more common in many of our older adults with HIV things such as housing, access to nutrition, stigma, and stress that contribute both to older to, to uh, the comorbidity burden in older adults with HIV, as well as probably directly to an increased risk of frailty. 
These factors have been associated with frailty in multiple different cohorts, and I just highlight a couple of the science abstracts that were presented this year at CROI. The first one is a, a somewhat busy table from um, the cohort in France, but just to, to highlight that, again, age, socioeconomic factors, and comorbidities come across uh, as um, major risk factors for frailty in this older population. And then the bottom is just a table from a poster um, from the, the Weiss cohort and the Max cohort that show a higher cardiovascular disease risk is also associated with frailty. And in this study, uh, they found a stronger association in men than in women. So you may be thinking, okay, great, you just told me all this information about frailty, but what am I actually supposed to do with this information in the clinic? I'm not going to spend 10 minutes and check a frailty assessment. I don't have time. So let's take an example case to think to, to kind of illustrate how you might think about frailty in the context of a clinic patient. So this is a 68-year-old woman with generally fair health. She has treated HIV and obesity. She's a non-smoker, doesn't have diabetes. Um, and she comes in, since her last visit, she's had a couple of falls. She also says that she probably isn't taking her medication quite as well. She's missed several of her doses of HIV medications because she just can't remember. She seems like she's having a bit more thinking difficulties. And when you ask her about how active she's been over the last couple of months, um, she admits that she has difficulty in walking several blocks, which she needs to do to catch her bus to get to clinic. Um, some of that may have been because of her falls, but she feels like her mobility has really started to decrease. So what is the best way that you would assess her function at today's visit? Would you check the Veterans Aging Cohort Study Index? Would you assess her time to rise up from the chair, maybe five times or 10 times? Would you do the freed frailty phenotype, a short physical performance battery, which is similar to the frailty phenotype, includes balance, short gait speed, and time to rise up from a chair, or potentially any of the above, but it kind of depends on what time you have available and what um, equipment you have available in your clinic today. Okay, so the majority answered potentially all of the above um, depends on the question, time available and equipment, which is the answer I was going for. So good. Um, so when we're thinking about frailty, frailty is probably uh, a more advanced stage. And ideally, when we're seeing a patient in clinic, we can catch them at these much earlier declines in their function, kind of these pre-frail uh, individuals or even those that might have declined on a single measure, like slower gait speed over time or weaker grip, so that we can keep their full performance curve and keep them out of frailty and maybe until the very last years of life. If you think about someone's performance over time, if they have this accelerated aging curve and they're dipping down into this frail uh, stage in midlife, it's much harder to reverse frailty and bring them back up to that normal um, level of performance. So ideally when we're seeing patients in clinic, we can identify more subtle impairments to try to intervene early and prevent frailty instead of trying to reverse frailty. Um, so if we're thinking about what tests we might do in clinic, as that uh, question um, indicated, it really is dependent on how much time you have, what kind of information you can get, and how detailed of information you need. If it's just something to kind of guide your clinic decision for that day, or if it's a more um, long longitudinal assessment where you really want detailed data so you can watch someone's performance over time. 
So I just want to share a few examples of different tests you might consider. Um, of note, there are hundreds of different assessments that's been, that have been done, um, actually hundreds of different ways that people have assessed frailty alone. And so this is just a very brief sample of some that you might consider. The six-minute walk or 400-meter walk, pretty similar tests. Um, six-minute walk used a lot in the pulmonary clinic, and 400-meter walk probably used more in the geriatric setting. This is getting a little bit higher level of function, uh, perhaps how our patient can do walking several blocks to get to work um, or to the bus, whether or not someone's oxygen is desaturating, uh, gets a little bit more at their endurance and might pick up more subtle impairments in your patients that might be a little bit more fit um, rather than that patient that can't even walk from the exam room to the door. Uh, the um, problem with the 400-meter walk is it probably takes either six minutes if you're doing the six-minute walk or between about five to ten minutes um, for the 400-meter walk, and it does require some space. A chair rise time or just the ability to stand up from a chair, you could do this once. You could do it five times, which is the way it's used in a lot of batteries. You could see how many times someone can rise in 30 seconds. Really easy, quick test. All you need is a chair and a stopwatch, which is available in a lot of clinic settings but it's focusing a little bit more on the lower extremity, less maybe on endurance or balance. A short physical performance battery does have some um, data in populations with HIV, which I'll touch on in a minute, um, but similar to the freed, uh, frailty phenotype, it does take about five to 10 minutes. And the VAX index, with it, which I mentioned, super easy and fast, you can calculate it with lab variables. And while it's been associated with frailty in some settings, it's more of a mortality risk, and it, it doesn't necessarily identify specific deficits that you can target uh, for interventions. And then I wanted to briefly mention the clinical frail scale. This really hasn't been used a lot in the HIV setting, but actually came up a bit with the um, the healthcare system in the UK during COVID as kind of a way to prior, prioritize COVID care. And this is uh, the clinical frail scale. It's kind of a validated eyeball test, basically. So you can look at a patient. Um, you can see, for example, someone that's very fit, someone who's robust and active, and they exercise frequently. And in contrast, someone who's scoring the highest on this test is someone that's terminally ill, bed-bound, essentially can't get out of bed. So it kind of gives a few descriptors for the clinician's eyeball test to just kind of see where patients are at on that scale. can be um, done just at the bedside and really requires no training or additional time in your visit. So in this case, the provider attempted to do a timed up and go, which is another assessment. You have the patient rise up from the chair without using their arms, walk across the room, turn around and come back. And there are some set uh, variables that you can use for times. But in this case, the patient couldn't actually get out of the chair without using her arms. So definitely some significant lower extremity strength problems. The provider also estimated this patient's clinical frailty scale at about a level four. And so she was identified as high risk for frailty. Uh, the provider referred her to the geriatric clinic, which they did have available to do a full geriatric assessment and talk about some additional issues with her ongoing care. Um, the provider referred her to physical therapy for some strength training and balance training to try to in improve her endurance or walking speed. And she also had a home occupational therapy assessment to um, check for loose rugs, cords, things like that at home that might contribute to falls. The pharmacist met with her to provide a pill box, help her set up some reminders on her phone, and start to talk about what medications she could potentially de-escalate um, to ensure that she's able to take her medications and not have a burden of polypharmacy. Um, so we really don't have a lot of studies or even clinical um, descriptions of how these measures might be incorporated in clinic. There was a study that Heidi Crane did a couple of years ago trying to implement the short physical performance battery in three different HIV clinics. 
Two of the clinics, they were able to do this assessment right before or right after a clinic visit. And one of the clinics actually required that the patients had to come back and have an, a separate assessment um, at a, a different visit because it just was too much time and burden to do in that, in that one visit. Uh, they took about an hour to train all the staff to administer this. It wasn't a provider-administered uh, test. And then the assessment time took about seven minutes. Um, and so while the study concluded that this was feasible to implement without serious disruptions, it seems that it would probably be um, not extremely feasible to implement in a routine HIV clinic visit if it's requiring seven minutes, uh, unless there was a way to have this done as part of vital signs or kind of in the after visit where labs and um, medications might be filled. Okay, so what do we do next with this patient? She comes back to the clinic three months later. She's continued to have difficulty walking several blocks, although she does have a little bit of improvement. And her ability to manage finances and medications has actually worsened somewhat. So at this visit, um, you are, we're planning on scheduling her for a routine mammogram and colonoscopy. Does this additional information about her function change your recommendations for whether or not she should go forward with her routine mammogram and colonoscopy? No, you would go ahead and refer her for a mammogram and colonoscopy. This doesn't change your recommendation. She's only 68. Yes, this is serious information. You should not refer her for a mammogram or colonoscopy. Or yes, although this um, does suggest that the risk might be greater than benefit for either her mammogram or colonoscopy, it's something that you discuss with the patient and inform a mutual decision. And we had um, about a quarter of people that answered, no, we would refer for mammogram and colonoscopy. And <laughs> the majority that said yes, but we would discuss this with the patient. So the final answer. And um, so just to illustrate how you might incorporate these and how they might inform your decision, this is a tool that's um, called ePrognosis that's published through, the, through UCSF, and it allows you to estimate the risk and benefit of certain procedures, um, particularly with older patients. So you can plug in all of a, a patient's information, their age, their BMI, their comorbidities, their sex, um, some of their other risk factors. And in her case, I plugged in all of her risk factors but I did not say that she had functional impairment, either cognitive or physical function impairment. And with her general history, but without this functional information, it clearly shows that she would have um, benefit from screening for, for breast and colon cancer. The, the benefit of the procedure well outweighs the risk. However, if I go back and use her same information, but plug in her functional impairment, note that she has difficulty walking several blocks and has some difficulty with her finances and medications, then this completely flips the calculator. She now, it's now it's not clear that she actually is having a benefit from getting screened for breast and colon cancer. Um, and really it's a, it's something that can guide our decision and discussion with the patient. While we may think she's young, she clearly needs to have this screening. Potentially there's more risk to these procedures than we're, um, than we appreciate just by kind of looking at age as a number alone. And so this information certainly should not dictate whether or not we should stop cancer screenings, but it provides a little bit more information to go back to that patient and talk a bit more about their thoughts and desires and goals for care. 
Um, other ways that we might incorporate this information, a lot of our patients are getting older, aren't aware of advanced directives and powers of attorney, and this might really highlight that patient that maybe isn't doing quite as well as we anticipated or thought with their age alone, and we need to go back and talk about their advanced care um, planning and whether or not they've thought about end-of-life issues, not necessarily that they're there, but just that they've had those discussions and kind of have a plan in place. Um, for those that have access to a geriatric clinic or a geriatric um, consultative model, this might identify patients at higher risk that really need to, that might benefit most from a referral. And as we think about frequency of visits for our older patients, uh, we've kind of shifted to less frequent visits for routine HIV care, but perhaps those that have functional impairment might benefit from more regular visits every three months or even more frequently to, to uh, check in and make sure they're doing okay. I think there's also a role for some of these measures in the setting of a clinical trial. A lot of our studies um, with adjuvant therapies for HIV focus on endpoints of inflammation or immune activation or viral reservoir, and perhaps shifting our focus a bit and adding secondary outcomes of physical function or cognitive function can provide some additional patient um, or meaningful outcomes to patients as to whether or not these therapies are actually benefiting them in additional ways. An example of this is the reprieve trial, which I mentioned before, uh, and we've been able to incorporate some physical function outcomes to see if statins have added benefit or harm on physical function in comparison to the other outcomes of inflammation and cardiovascular events. So if we identify this, this person, for example, as frail or pre-frail, what are the things that we can do to intervene? And this is a chart that's um, published in several geriatric texts and an up-to-date for geriatrics. And as you can see highlighted across the top of the slide, exercise is really the mainstay of treatment for essentially every stage of pre-frailty and frailty, except for that extremely frail population that's getting referred for hospice care or end-of-life care. Um, and while we don't know quite, about, about, quite as much about the types of exercise that might benefit older adults specifically with HIV, we do have some data um, that does include uh, functional outcomes in patients with HIV and some that are in uh, those that are older. We've seen in a couple of studies that exercise training can improve 400-meter walk. There's physical activity counseling or just even home-based therapies that have improved outcomes such as a six-minute walk time or time to rise from a chair. And then some multi-component studies like Tai Chi or physical therapy that, in, that have improved other outcomes such as short physical performance battery scores um, and six-minute walk time. In a uh, study in Colorado, we compared two different intensities of exercise in sedentary people with HIV. And while we saw some of the most improvements in those that were randomized to a higher intensity of exercise, uh, we did see improvements up to 45% across many different outcomes, such as chair rise and strength in both of our groups uh, with and without HIV. And while we were targeting a bit higher population, kind of that pre-frail population with this study, um, and didn't have any frail individuals enrolled, we did see a decrease in our components of pre-frailty, as you can see with the decreasing red and green bars in this graph. Um, so one of the best ways that we can improve exercise, one of the one of the benefits actually of COVID this year has been this outpouring of free videos on exercise that you can get off of YouTube. And I took the titles directly from YouTube of several different exercises that are directed towards seniors that really target those four areas of exercise and physical activity recommended by the World Health Organization. 
of endurance, strength, balance, and flexibility. Many of these are short videos. Some of them are even chair-based exercises. So even your most functionally impaired patients can do some of these exercises um, without any difficulties. A lot of them might have hand weights, but they also give um, options for substituting things like a milk jug, um, cans of food, other things that people have around their home to really make exercise accessible to everyone, uh, older adults, regardless of their resources. Now, certainly sometimes exercise isn't enough, and there are some non-pharmacologic interventions that we can add to exercise that might enhance the benefit, such as nutritional um, supplementation, um, some just multimodal approaches like helping patients um, access a geriatric consultative clinic where they may have different social services that help support them, um, evaluating mood disorders, and then really addressing polypharmacy that may have more harm uh, than we appreciate. And Dr. Flexner will talk more in the next um, session about that. And then there are some patients that really can't achieve that intensity of exercise that they need to overcome some of these impairments. Um, there are certainly some drugs kind of in the works to look at the benefits on frailty. Most of these are in preclinical models, and almost all of them are in populations of people without HIV. But I think we will know more about some of these non um, or some of these pharmacologic interventions in the next few years. So in summary, functional limitations and frailty can really provide a window into patient vulnerability and help to guide our clinical decision making. Event intervention should really focus on early impairments that occur before midlife um, or be before a person becomes frail to have the most benefit. And physical activity is probably one of the safest and most effective interventions. We do have some promising pharmaceutical options, but uh, we need a lot more research and more time before those are ready for prime time. And so in summary, physical activity counseling should really become a routine component of our HIV visits to help per to um, maximize both the quality and quantity of life for our older patients with HIV. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That was terrific. Um, and we have about um, five minutes or so for questions. So, um, and we have some questions in the Q&A. Remember, everybody, you can ask your questions during the, the presentation. Um, so, uh, Christine, can you comment briefly on the validity and reliability of the frailty indices that you have mentioned? And then also, um, are there any data using frailty tools in younger adults or teenagers? Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not aware of the use in teenagers. Um, some, a lot of the studies have included some younger individuals, although I would say the majority have looked at probably 35 to 40 and older. Um, and in, it, it's kind of a similar um, question regarding the validity. And I think this does raise some questions as to what some of these markers mean in younger populations. Is this really looking at the same frailty that we're seeing in a 70-year-old? Are we picking up different markers that may overlap with frailty, um, in particular depression? Depression has a lot of overlapping features with frailty. Um, patients that are severely depressed will probably also or may have weight loss, may have slowed, um, um, slowed gait and fatigue. And so... Um, there, there certainly is concern for some overlap. We looked at the, um, compared several different frailty indices on mortality and actually saw a pretty similar, um, uh, prediction of mortality. Though I think it, it depends on what your question is. If you're looking for a population, identifying a population that's at risk, then you probably are still identifying a population at risk. It just, 
depends on what you're what you're looking for and how you want to intervene. But I think that frail population, even if they're 20, probably still has some room for interventions that you can improve their quality of life over time. Yeah, and you know, since frailty is so common, um, we have a question about whether we should just be offering some of these interventions to decrease risk for everybody over 50. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think exercise is the big, I mean, that's the big intervention that we know can help prevent frailty. And I absolutely think exercise or at least some level of physical activity and kind of promoting physical activity and anyone is important. Um, even the 20, the populations of those in their 20s and 30s, um, particularly to prevent some of the increase in obesity that we're seeing as people are getting older. So I think some interventions that are more simple and have added benefit. Clearly, exercise has many benefits beyond just prevention of frailty is um, extremely important. There's probably some benefit in offering some additional kind of um, uh, coordination of care, um, de-escalating medications as needed. So certainly some benefit of um, addressing some of the other interventions for for frailty in younger populations as well. So. Yeah, you know, these are interventions that really could benefit all of us. So. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> self-included. Uh, so these are not bad things to, to emphasize. Um, so uh, we have a couple of questions about uh, pharmacological treatments, um, specifically uh, memantine uh, and then testosterone. So you want to comment on uh, any treatments in particular? Sure. I mean, I, I think testosterone um, may have some benefit. There's been a lot more um, larger trials in populations without HIV in older adults. Um, and there's there has been several studies have shown an increase in muscle mass. Um, fewer studies have actually shown an improvement in muscle function or in other like six minute walk time or some of these other outcomes. Um, with any pharmacologic agent comes the risk of polypharmacy drug interactions, and then particularly with testosterone therapy would be that increased risk of cardiovascular disease that we see, um, that we have seen in several geriatric populations. And so I think there's weighing the risk and benefit of um, would this increase in your function be outweighed by a potential increase in cardiovascular risk and kind of considering the patient and what their additional cardiovascular disease risk factors are. And I think that's probably the case with almost any medication is there's going to be potential side effects. Yeah, good point. Nothing is risk-free. So we're always weighing that. Um, one last question. Very quickly, uh, this is something that we actually talked about yesterday. Uh, Jerry brought it up. You know, uh, for those of us who've been in this a very long time, we always addressed end-of-life issues really upfront with our patients, even if they weren't older. Um, and sometimes these days we might forget to really have proactive discussions about end-of-life issues with our older patients. Um, any thoughts on that just briefly? Yeah, I mean, I think this this does help us identify those patients that maybe do need this the end-of-life issues addressed sooner. And I think addressing end-of-life issues um, even if it's not necessarily end end of life, but kind of that, do you have a, a decision maker that you have? Have you talked to your family and your friends about what you might want? We should really start, you know, once someone hits age 50 or even younger, kind of become part of our routine care so that we can continue to update things as they age. Yeah, great idea. Well, listen, thank you so much. This was really terrific. Um, and uh, if we can impose on you, Dr. Erlinson, to look at some of the QA uh 
questions that we didn't get to. And if you have other questions, please just put them in the QA box and uh, we'll, we'll hope that we can get to them um, in that box. So thank you very much. Thank you.